First of all, the brown tones woven into the fantasy spin a story of the tiniest reindeer who ever helped Santa. But first, if you're in somewhat of a brown study yourself, trying to reconcile purse and gift list, you'll welcome a word from this friend of ours. never saw a dick dick, but you may have seen a picture of one or even a movie of one in action, because dick dicks are among the smallest antelope in the world, hardly larger than a rabbit. They travel through the grasslands of tropical Africa on delicate little legs no bigger than a man's thumb and leave behind hoof prints hardly larger than a quarter. Yes, the Dick Dick is for real. I can vouch for that. As for this story about a little Dick Dick named Dixon, well, if you believe in Santa, you can believe in Dixon. Dixon the Dick Dick was a daydreamer, and sometimes it tried the patience of his family to the breaking point. As his mother said critically, Dixon had big ideas. And he certainly did. About the biggest idea he got hold of came to him one Christmas Eve. He was up a little later than he should have been, and he sighted something most unlikely for Africa, a sleigh. It came soaring down from the sky for a landing on a thatched missionary hut. If the sleigh was a little fat man, was clad all in scarlet, who huffed and chuckled while he unloaded some toys. But it wasn't scarlet-clad Santa that caught Dixon's eye. Uh-huh. It was the reindeer. Right then, Dixon decided on a career. He would be a member of that adventurous, world-touring team of reindeer when he grew up. Dixon, you see, had not yet realized that he would never grow up, at least not to reindeer proportions. He overlooked another fact as well. Dixon was not a deer at all, but an antelope. However, he wasn't going to let such minor details trouble him. And by the time another Christmas Eve rolled around, he was ready. This time, when Santa's sleigh slid down from the stars to the rooftop, Dixon the Dick Dick was hiding in the roof thatch, ready to hop into the sleigh and hitch a ride, which he did. 
And it wasn't until a weary setter unloaded at the North Pole after his rounds that Dixon was discovered. Having seen Santa's stuffed stockings full of dreams the world around, Dixon wasn't a bit bashful about confiding his own dreams to the kindly old gent. He wanted to be a reindeer. He pointed out with artful diplomacy that Santa's team seemed to be named him Rhyme, like Dancer and Prancer and his own name, fortunately, rhymed perfectly with the reindeer named Vixen, Vixen and Dixon. You see, Santa, it was ideal. Santa wanted to laugh, but he didn't. In his kindest way, he explained that though he had a few magical powers, changing a dick-dick into a reindeer was far beyond him. Dixon was just too small. Well, any boy or girl who has ever wanted to do something real bad, only to be told, you're too little, knows just how Dixon felt. He moped around all year, being helpful and hopeful to the lost. He packed some of the smaller things, like lollipops for crating. And once, Santa found him pondering around in a snowdrift, hitched up to a doll's sleigh, trying to put in some practice. Dixon just never gave up. But in the end, Santa and the sleigh and the reindeer team took off without him. Dixon the Dick Dick felt very low. He wandered into the workshop, empty now of everything except doll dress scraps and wood shavings. And what was that? Right on the desk, Santa's delivery list. He'd never make his rounds in time without that root list. And lots of little boys and girls might be forgotten, too. So Dixon started to pick the sheets up in his mouth. No, they'd get damp that way. Carefully, he speared them onto his little three-inch stiletto-sharp long horn. He ran out in the snow, looked up in the sky, and he wondered, could he fly like the reindeer did? He never had, but he sort of thought he could. For Santa and for all the good little boys and girls waiting for Christmas, he'd try. So he closed his eyes and just fought himself up and up and up as hard as he could think. And when he opened his eyes, there he was, whizzing past the clouds, scudding under the stars, and right ahead was Santa. A mighty thankful Santa, too. When Dixon arrived with the maps and the lists and the root sheet, Dixon, Santa decided, was quite a dick-dick. And they'd trust him with the gift list and the maps every Christmas. Yes, Dixon the dick-dick was a mighty little antelope. But he had big ideas and big faith in himself to match them. So naturally, he succeeded. He rides now, just as he always said he would, with Santa Claus himself. It's always a Merry Christmas for Dixon, the little brown Dick Dick. Jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in 
something else to make it a Merry Christmas for you and yours. Some bright ideas to fit in with your Christmas planning from this friend of ours. It was not the angels singing gave the Christmas thought, not the precious gold and incense by the wise men brought, not the shining star that led them on their unknown way, Twas the Christ within the manger made that Christmas day. So it is not the tree and presents make our Christmas day, it is what we get that counts, but what we give away. Tis the joy of loving service makes the glad hours bright, thinking first of others' pleasure, self put out of sight. We need never mourn that Christmas comes but once a year, since the blessedness of giving brings the Christmas cheer. If we keep the Christmas spirit in our hearts always, through the whole year we can make it Christmas every day. In Wales, it takes a man of both capacity and courage to don a wassail cup. Not only is the drink served in an oversized goblet, but afloat upon it is a half a walnut shell, like a round little boat. And inside the shell is a lighted candle. The trick is to down the last drop of the toast without singeing your eyebrows. And it's my guess that very few succeed. 
If you like to live dangerously, just try this Welsh wassail cup trick during one of your own Yuletide parties. Remember, the liquid should float a walnut shell boat with a lighted candle in it, which in itself is quite a trick. Speaking of tricks, you'll find it's no trick at all to match up every name on your gift list when you shop at this friend of ours. Christmas masterpiece, the story of how George Handel wrote the Messiah in only 24 inspired days. And let's start with the first day, August 22nd, 1741. It was a warm day in London. Everyone complained of the heat and discomfort. That is, almost everyone. One person certainly was unaware not only of the heat of the day, but of the day, the year. In fact, George Frederick Handel was unaware of anything but the new work he had begun that very day. His face was flushed. His eyes were alive and glowing. He seemed to shed his 56 years as he worked and to become a young man again. He was equally unaware that he was about to embark on the 24 most important days of his life as he sat down to compose in the little front room of his house at 57 Lower Brook Street in Hanover Square in London. Not once for 24 days would he leave the small house on Brook Street and rarely would he leave his room. Never before had the music poured from him so easily. It was almost as if this work wrote itself. Why, already he had the first chorus section completed. Handel looked at the sheet of paper in his hand. It was the text for his new work. An acquaintance, Charles Jennings, had given it to him. 
Jennings was a wealthy, pompous, amateur poet who had been infuriated in England's literary critics by rewriting Shakespeare. But this summer, he had worked out a text based on the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments. As Handel examined the words, he decided he would write his composition in three parts. The first would deal with the prophecy, the nativity and the results of the birth of Christ. And the second would deal with the passion story and the triumphant spread of Christianity. And the third section would be about life in the world to come. He worked on. The first day passed into the second and the third. And still that first rush of energy, enthusiasm, and inspiration that usually accompanies the start of a creative project had not in the least worn off. Handel, who had been disappointed before, facing bankruptcy twice, considered a failure by his contemporaries in London, Handel, who had reached the lowest ebb of his entire life just a few short months ago in November, when he had withdrawn from public life after the closing of his latest opera. This same Handel was now aglow with fresh inspiration and creative happiness. If his manservant had not brought meals to his room and urged him to eat, he would have neglected this minor detail altogether. Nothing seemed important to him but the setting of these words to this music. It was from Isaiah. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The fourth day passed, and the fifth and the sixth, and on the seventh day, the first part was completed. Seven days in which Handel had seen not one, no one but his manservant had had little sleep, little food, and little air. And yet, contrary to the laws of nature, he was thriving on it all. This was work into which a man could throw himself. Not like the Italian operas he had been writing for English audiences these past two decades. This new work wasn't an opera. It was a fairly new art form in England called oratorio, which is a choral work based upon the Bible. The eighth day and the ninth day and the tenth, the mid September. Those days, music was not considered a respectable profession, but someone so full of music as Handel could not stay away from music long. With the help of a maiden aunt who lived with the Handels, he would steal away from home for music lessons. Yes, music had always been more important than anything else or anybody. His music had brought many women to his feet. London society women had crowded about him, anxious to get him to their salons. And he seemed to have a way with them. He loved a battle with a bright conversationalist of the opposite sex, but only twice in his life did the question of marriage ever seriously occur. The decision was an easy one. Music had always come first. And now in his small room on Brook Street, music was not only first, it was again all. Just nine days after the first part of his new work had been completed, he finished part two. It took him just six more days to complete the final part of Messiah. And then he spent two days filling in instrumentation. The work was completed September 14th, just 24 days from the day he began. 24 days that Handel lived in a kind of a dream. His servant told of one incident. Handel had just finished part two with the famous Alleluia Chorus when the servant entered the room. 
Handel was seated at a table and tears were streaming from his eyes. As he said, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself.
are the great works. Great works of the Christmas season written in 24 short days. Here is something to brighten up the Christmas of today from a friend of ours. <laughs> 